You're listening to New Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I talk with Dahlia Nassar, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. Our interview focuses on German women philosophers of the 18th and 19th century. The philosophers we discuss wrote on a variety of topics, including idealism, phenomenology, feminism, labor movements, workers' rights, and environmental ethics. Besides these themes, Dahlia and I discuss why it might be that these women have not received modern philosophical attention, the reason women's writing in this period is both particularly radical and particularly accessible, and the variety of benefits that come from including these works in classes on and discussions of the time period. My name is Dahlia Nassar. I work in late 18th and 19th century philosophy, and I am currently co-editing two volumes on women philosophers in the 19th century. So Dahlia, in particular today, I'd love to talk to you about these women philosophers of the 18th and 19th century. And I wanted to start by asking you, how did you get interested in doing this work and working on these philosophers? Well, I work in um, the history of 19th century philosophy primarily. I work on people like Kant and um, Schelling and more recently on Herder and Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt and Goethe. And I was just suddenly thinking, this is not the whole conversation. Things were happening during that time that I'm not looking at, that I'm missing out on. And I wanted to understand the whole conversation that was taking place uh, among thinkers during that period. And I realized that a part of that conversation that was missing wasn't only those less known thinkers, um, male thinkers, but also the female, the women thinkers who were being read and part of the conversation in the early 19th century. Madame de Stahl, Germaine de Stahl, was one of the most widely read authors in the 19th century. Her book on Germany um, was a bestseller and, and she was writing about German philosophy. She was a huge influence on the development of our understanding of romanticism as a philosophical movement. And so that was the main inspiration, is I wanted to know what was really the conversation like at that time. Who were all the people contributing to these philosophical movements that we now call romanticism and idealism? So you've mentioned Madame du Stahl. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to give me a few more names of these philosophers? So in addition to Madame de Stahl that I mentioned earlier, whose work on Germany was extremely influential during that time, there is Carolina von Gunderode, who was um, part of what we today call idealism. She worked on and wrote on the same kinds of topics that Fichte and Schelling were writing on. Um, idea, questions about self-consciousness, questions about self-determination, like Bestimmung for Fichte and for Gunderhude were really crucial ideas. Uh, idea, the idea of nature and the human relationship to the natural world, these were all at the heart of Gunderhude's writing. And um, another one from that same time period is uh, Bettina von Arnhem, who was Bettina Brentano, and her brother is Clemens Brentano, the well-known poet, and she married the other well-known romantic poet, Achim von Arnhem. So she's known either as uh, Bettina Brentano or Bettina von Arnhem. And her works, um, including a book called Gunderhode on Carolina von Gunderhode, in which they exchange philosophical letters, 
which was published into English very soon after its publication in German by Margaret Fuller, the American Margaret Fuller, and received quite a lot of attention in the United States during the mid-19th century because, as Fuller explained in an essay that she published in Emerson's journal, The Dial, on uh, Gunderhode, on this book titled Gunderhode, um, this, this work exhibits true platonic friendship and philosophical friendship between women, and it was a kind of ideal for someone like Fuller who, as a woman philosopher in the United States, wanted to emulate the kind of friendship that she saw in that book. Um, so those are three women who are closely connected to romanticism and idealism. But of course, there were other movements in the 19th century. Above all, feminism was taking off in Germany in the 19th century. And thinkers like Hedwig Dohm, uh, writing on questions about women's rights, women's education. And uh, Rosa Luxemburg was, of course, an important thinker in the 19th century. She wrote a lot about uh, economics, political economics, and um, quite a few of her works were uh, critical of uh, the situation of workers um, in Germany, but also in her native Poland. Her close friend is Clara Zetkin, who combined feminism and uh, Marxism and, and saw the plight of women as deeply connected to the plight of the worker and wrote many essays on on this particular question of various forms of struggle and how we how they are deeply connected, that we can't separate one from the other. Later in the century, we've got um, people like Lou Andreas Salome, who wrote a, quite a bit on sexuality, gender issues, and psychoanalysis. And then we've got the early phenomenologists, like um, Edith Stein is very well known, but um, she became a saint, and so it's, it's quite widely uh, published and widely translated into English thanks to that. Um, but in addition to Stein, there were some of Stein's students like um, uh, Hedwig Konrad Martius and Gerda Walter, who was actually, he, she definitely was one of Stein's students in, in Freiburg. And so there's a lot of women in the early phenomenology movement that um, probably more than in other, any other movement, because women were suddenly allowed to go to universities and, and participate in academic style philosophy far more easily than they had been before um, the early 20th century. So you've just provided quite a list of names of women writing and doing philosophy in the 18th and 19th century in Germany, even before they were allowed, formally allowed into academic spaces. Uh, you also mentioned both the popularity and accessibility of their writings, topics like the self and workers' rights, and examples of friendships that were picked up across the continent in some cases. Uh, but for the most part, these philosophers are rarely mentioned in contemporary discussions of the time period or taught in classes. Yeah. What do you think explains our lack, or at least our historical lack, of engagement with these thinkers? So there's a, there's a few answers to this question, but it is a, a kind of the million-dollar question. Why were these women being published and being read? In particular, I'm thinking of people like Stahl, who was definitely a, you know, a bestseller in... Um, in her native uh, French, but also was translated into German. And people like uh, Bettina von Arnhem, who was translated really quickly into English and widely read and influential in the United States. As I mentioned, she influenced uh, Margaret Fuller, but also 
another American uh, women philosopher named, named um, Lydia Maria Child, who became one of the foremost abolitionists and so on. So why were these women being widely read and published and translated in the early 19th century and suddenly forgotten? And I think there are two answers. The first is um, the way histories of philosophy were being written um, by people like Hegel. So when you look at how Hegel understood the history of philosophy, I mean, he really mentions no names. <laughs> That's, you know, but, but when he does mention names, it's all the men. And you get the sense that there was nobody else writing um, before. Uh, there were no other people contributing to that history. And so people like Stahl, who was part of a different tradition from Hegel's, uh, just got erased. But so were other people who were, you know, like Herder is really hardly mentioned by someone like Hegel. So, and, and, or Schleiermacher or something like that. So partly it's Hegel's fault, you could say, <laughs> for writing a history of philosophy that was very uh, geared towards Hegel's own philosophical um, project. And therefore anything that was outside of it was simply not included. And that included a lot of women who were writing outside of the tradition that Hegel saw himself as, as contributing to. Um, but then there were later histories of philosophy being written. So late 19th century and then 20th century histories of philosophy. If you look at Frederick Copplestone, I mean, who were, it's the, the great, uh, the canon is formed to a certain extent by Frederick Copplestone. And there's not one mention of there's perhaps a mention of uh, Emily du Châtelet in Frederick Copplestone, but no mention of any women in the 19th century. So someone like Stahl, someone like Luxembourg is just not mentioned. And then, in the, and then there's no, no mention of the early phenomenologists. And so I think there's, um, it's, it's in large part due to these histories of philosophy that we have come to recognize as canonical, as telling us a story of philosophy, of European philosophy, that have simply excluded those women, whether it's because of, you know, from Hegel's perspective, they were just not part of the project that he was uh, contributing to, or from a different perspective, that simply for misogynistic reasons, I guess you could say, that they were not taken seriously simply uh, because they were women. So, so they were systematically left out of these accounts of the history of philosophy. I, I would say so. I mean, in part, you could say, okay, so a lot of the women in the 19th century are doing philosophy and empirical work at the same time. And, you know, Luxembourg is an, a prime example. So she is someone who draws out uh, Marxist thought, um, but brings it to the ground and so uses she studied economics she was the first phd in economics from the university of zurich and so for her it's just not good enough to theorize you have to also look at the data and so a lot of people would look at that and say that's not really philosophy because she's doing too much empirical research she's drawing too much on um on history sociology psychology yeah. and so on and on, on economics and so on. From our contemporary perspective, that's actually a huge plus, a huge advantage. But um, you know, if you are believe, if you believe in pure science, if you think that philosophy is a pure uh, subject, then you'd say, well, what she's doing isn't philosophy. Although, to my mind, precisely what philosophy should aim to do is to bring theory, uh, make theory more concrete, and to bring sort of theoretical richness to data. 
would say that's the same for other thinkers, women thinkers like um, Stahl. So in her history of German philosophy, and perhaps she was before Hegel, the first sort of German-like thinker to do a history of philosophy, a canon, to offer a canon. What is German philosophy? But how she does it is very different from Hegel. She wants to understand German philosophy from the ground up. So the way she begins her book on Germany is by describing the natural landscape, by describing German traditions, by describing the culture of the people. And then out of that saying emerges this philosophy. And so she sees philosophy as very much something that's from the ground up, that's something connected to uh, larger cultural, political questions and not something a priori. Oh, this is so interesting because, as you mentioned, the works of people like Stahl and Luxembourg seem so directly influential, or I guess more appropriately continuous, with popular methods of doing philosophy today, experimental philosophy and interdisciplinary work. Yeah. Uh, to think that this work was cut out or, you know, cut out at least in part because it didn't fit into the mold of what philosophy was at the time I think says a lot about the process and coincidences of canon yeah. formation. That's it. Shifting gears just a bit, just because you've named so many texts at this point, given the wide period of time you're talking about, this may be an unfair question to ask. Uh, but I wonder, in the interest of starting to read these figures and works again, if there was one text you could assign to all the philosophy students at your institution, what would it be? Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard one, that one. I think I, I would say there's at least two. <laughs> and so I'm not going to answer the question properly. I'm going to uh, offer you two texts. And I would say the first one is uh, Carolina von Gunderode's uh, very short essay titled The Idea of the Earth. Um, I think it's a radical essay. It has... It addresses environmental questions that are very pressing for us today in a way that is even radical for our contemporary environmental ethics. So her view there is that the earth is something that has agency and that we should be cognizant of that agency and we should understand our agency in relation to the earth's agency. And that means that how we understand ourselves, how we understand our uh, ethical, moral ideals should always be connected to this larger community, as she puts it, of the earth. And I think it's a short essay, but it was something that will get people thinking, is that can we really um, grant to the more than human world agency? What would that look like? Um, on what philosophical grounds can we do that? And what would it? What kind of different kind? What what would be the different kinds of ethical ideals that we would have as human beings if we were to start understanding ourselves as some somehow acting not simply for ourselves or for other humans, but for the more than human world? If our moral ideals took them into account as well, and those are the kinds of things that she's. Um, putting forward in that essay. And I think it's a, a really important text to be reading in a time of, of environmental crisis. Um, the other text that I would strongly recommend is by uh, Rosa Luxemburg. It comes from, it's a, a short, uh, not short, but a longish essay, I guess, part of a um, her uh, book on political economy. And it's titled Wage work or uh, wage labor, sort of trying to understand the idea of wages, of having a salary. And she uh, identifies or sees a strong connection between the contemporary laborer who receives a wage and 
the slave. And so this is in a way she's disagreeing with Marx, who thinks that the kind of modern slavery is the outcome of private property. She sees it as connected to pre-modern slavery, but she also sees crucial differences between the two. And in pointing to those differences, she shows that, um, well, for instance, for the pre-modern slave, uh, you kind of, you have your bit of land that you work on and that bit of land, um, you know what you're making, you know what's going to you and you know what's going to the person who owns the land. And it's all coming to, so, and, and there's a kind of, um, commensurateness, you could say, you've got your food for yourself that you make from the land and you know that this is enough for you and you don't make any more. And you have a sense of the whole, you have a sense of what you're getting and what someone else is getting out of your labor. That becomes all very invisible in the modern situation. And um, the modern slave is not making things for herself, but making like one part of a very large machine, right? And so whatever you're making, you're, um, it's, it's not something that's going to translate into uh, the, your basic needs. So because you don't have a sense of how much you need, you're, there's always going to be on the part of the factory owner, for instance, the temptation to just constantly make more, make more, because there is no... Uh, commensurateness there is no appropriateness between the amount of stuff being made and your basic needs and so i think this is an excellent analysis of why capitalism lends itself to non-stop growth why it sort of is a temptation to just constantly produce without any sense of how much we really need i'm curious have you had a chance to teach these or have you had students who've engaged with these texts before and if so uh, how, what was their reaction to them? I actually haven't. <laughs> I'm going to do that um, in second semester of 2021. Um, in my first, this is going to be my first round of teaching both of them in a 19th century philosophy unit. So I will let you know how, how that goes. Please do. If, if, what do you think about teaching these texts and how, how to present them to students? I mean, if you're preparing a class, I don't want to but maybe you yeah. can start to think about yeah. how to put yeah. Yeah. together yeah. a syllabus that includes these. Yeah, well, I mean, um, so I'm co-editing a volume with Kristen Yezdal, um, which includes texts, these texts, as well as many others. And our aim in that volume is to provide lecturers with texts that are easily paired with what are regularly on 19th century philosophy syllabi. So... Um, when you teach Kant, it would be really easy to also teach uh, Madame de Stahl's texts on Kant and on German philosophy because she's discussing Kant um, in this larger context. And then if you teach Fichte or Schelling, then it would be really easy to pair Gunderrode's essay with, with what they're doing, and in particular with Schelling's philosophy of nature. And in some ways, you don't need to teach Schelling's philosophy of nature because her text gets to those ideas and is even more radical in some ways because it's bringing in ethical questions that Schelling doesn't take up in his own philosophy of nature. Um, and then if you are teaching Marx, then clearly you would teach Luxembourg or you could also, again, just not teach Marx because Luxembourg gets to the heart of the ideas far more directly than Marx. And she does it in one text and goes beyond Marx, as I said, by con drawing connections to pre-modern slavery and analyzing the differences. And also by doing a lot more empirical work 
um, drawing on this kind of economics data that she has. So those would be the ways that I would um, include these authors. Again, if you are teaching someone like um, Nietzsche, for instance, in 19th century, Hedwig Dohm's critique of Nietzsche and his misogynism would be an excellent text because as, as someone teaching Nietzsche, regularly, I always think, what am I supposed to do with these statements about women all the time? And how should I take them? And Dome has one of the best responses. She says, okay, Nietzsche's um, great in so many ways. His idea of the self as something creative is inspiring and has a lot of potential for the feminist project. But we need to take him to task for his anti-feminism, which seems to be not grounded and to be completely biased because of his own personal experiences or because of, you know, cultural bias. And so she really does, you know, does, so she does this amazing work of, of seeing the good and the bad in Nietzsche. And I think that's a just perfect way of addressing um, Nietzsche's regular <laughs> misogynistic statements. Yeah, I think that aside just from the inherent philosophical interests of these works, the introductions of these texts to classes addresses or, or speaks to a problem that I certainly encountered as an undergraduate, and I know my students have brought up at various points, uh, which is exactly as you said, how to reconcile the philosophical value of the works of some 19th century thinkers with the often blatant misogyny or racism present in their, in yeah. their writings. Uh, I think being able to present students with a contemporary of, for example, Nietzsche, who is explicitly dealing with these tensions seems so valuable, both That's philosophically it. and pedagogically. Yeah. Uh, but to go back a little bit to these independent philosophical themes of the text, uh, could you talk to me a bit about work you've done on these women philosophers, either in the context of the anthology you're putting together or beyond? Um, so I wrote an article on Gunderhoda and um, reading Gunderhoda's uh, essay idea of the earth as a response to Fichte um, and in particular to Fichte's understanding of self-determination and how she has a very different understanding of self-determination that is more connected to this to the natural world mm -hmm. and um, the sense that the human sense of self can't be um, alienated from nature um, and I'm interested also in connecting some of these women who, particularly those who are doing the empirical work alongside the theory in and seeing them as part of a larger philosophical tradition that is not idealistic. So I'm working on a, a book project called Romantic Empiricism. And I think that uh, people like Germaine de Stahl are definitely part of this romantic and empiricist tradition. And so I would ideally like to see how... Um, she is a contributor to this tradition in which Herder plays a role, Goethe plays a role, Alexander von Humboldt plays a role. And, you know, if we knew the history better, we would know that all of these people were influenced and influencing one another. Uh, Humboldt, for instance, was very interested in um, Stahl's work and vice versa. They both have strong abolitionist views. So they were both anti-slavery and they both wrote on it. And so something on well, how did they come to their views? Uh, were they influencing one another? Did they come to their views independently? And how did that relationship develop? Another person that was interesting uh, for Alexander von Humboldt is uh, Bettina von Arnhem. She wrote a book late in life called Das Armenbuch, the, the book on poverty or the book of the, of the poor. And so 
Van Arnhem is someone who is usually regarded as a romantic slash idealist, but then in the mid-19th century, she wrote a book that was arguing against the situation of the poor, saying this is not sustainable, we need to help them, we need to develop ways, social ways of addressing poverty. And she went and was helping the poor. She was, of course, an aristocrat, but she went out of her home and out of her comforts and so on and, and was learning about the situation of the poor and wrote about it and couldn't publish it because she had already um, been imprisoned for three months for her work, for her outspoken statements about the poor. And Humboldt helped get her out of prison. And she understood very well that if she published this book, she would probably be back in prison and this time there would be no help. Mm. And so she didn't end up publishing it. And the first time it was published was in the 1960s. But um, connecting that work again to the work of Humboldt and Stahl on abolition and connecting someone like von Arnhem to socialist thought, right? And so seeing that there is a connection between romanticism and idealism and socialism is also, I think, uh, really important and 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 something I would potentially like to do. Um, so there's a lot going on there that, and this is why I wanted, I think you just don't know the full conversation until you get the women involved. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned this, you said if we knew this history better and I mean this, if you, you need the full conversation with these figures involved, have you found it difficult or have you encountered any difficulties in uh, working on these figures given the lack of uh, at least lack of scholarly engagement in the same way that there is on a lot of male figures of the time period? Um, yes and no. So if you work on Kant, you're going to be shocked, right? <laughs> because you're so used to having lots of secondary literature that you're going to, um, that's going to be oh, useful and not useful. But, you know, like secondary literature that will just help you understand where the questions are. Mm. And that's just not the case with most of these figures, these women figures. On the other hand, if you're working on lesser known figures of the 19th century. And I did that for my first book, mm -hmm. Novalis and Schlegel and, um, and Schelling. So yes, they have more literature written on them, mm -hmm. but it's still nothing in comparison to Kant. And so I had quite a bit of a sense of, okay, this is what it takes to, to work with figures that don't have basically every one of their words already yeah. interpreted and made sense of and so on. And so it wasn't a huge jump for me, mm -hmm. um, having had that experience. But um, yeah, it still is a, a big project in the sense of we will have, we, the people who are working on them now, mm -hmm. will have to basically figure out what the main questions are. And hopefully people will come in a few years and say, no, those are not the main questions. Yeah. These are. And so we're, we're basically establishing the, the foundations for a dialogue. And that ties very nicely into my next question, which is, is what advice do you have for carrying out this kind of work start to finish? Especially advice for people who are coming after you laid the groundwork so nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the main thing is to be open-minded because you're going to encounter texts that you might at first not take seriously. You'd say, oh, this isn't philosophy because of the kinds of prejudices that we develop as philosophers. Um to be open-minded and to think, well, this is actually in dialogue with a lot of philosophers, but it's saying things in a slightly different way or using different methodologies than what we're used to uh, seeing in 18th and 19th century philosophy. But also to be open-minded about what might be of interest. So a lot of times it's just good to read lots of texts and say, 
okay, well, what is the question here? What do I want to know? And not just go in and sort of with a question and try mm. to force that question on the text. I also think it's important to have a very solid sense of the historical and philosophical context to understand what these women were reading, what were they interested in, what was going on at the time, and to um, get a sense of, uh, of a larger dialogue, as I said, that they were contributing to, because they were definitely not in a vacuum. You know, they were they were all reading Kant, Fichte, Schelling, or Marx, or Nietzsche, or whomever it was, mm -hmm. and they were in dialogue. Part of this, they saw themselves as contributing to these larger uh, movements. And then out of that sense of okay, where were these women coming from? Who were they reading, and who did they influence as well? I mean. A big question is, okay, did Stahl influence Humboldt or not? Or did Stein, Edith Stein, influence Husserl or not? So there's really important questions to be taken. It's not just a one-way thing to also think what was the um, influence from the women onto the men. But then after you get a sense of that larger context, I would say start to developing, uh, focusing on a question. So that would be my advice is not to go in with a question, but sort of to allow yourself to become familiar with, with, with the context, historical and philosophical, and just remain open-minded, both in terms of what's interesting, mm -hmm. but on, also in terms of the writing style, because, you know, not everyone was writing like Kant in the 19th century. In fact, the most interesting philosophers were not writing like <laughs> Kant. And so... <laughs> Is there any kind of examples of, of quite unique styles of writing? I mean, often I've found in studying women philosophers of the early modern period that some of their most interesting works uh, come through poetry or novels. Were there any particular style that was emphasized really in the 19th century? Well, um, a lot of them were writing essays, mm -hmm. so not treatises in a sort of strong philosophical sense of, you know, premise one, premise two, premise mm -hmm. three, but more of they were more like writing essays. Um, but they were all writing novels as well. So in addition to writing essays, they wrote novels or plays. And so we have, Kristen and I, in our anthology, we focused on their essays because we thought that would be mm -hmm. um, the easiest way of incorporating them into a philosophical sort of syllabus, into what we think of currently as philosophically relevant and worthy. But I think optimally we would start to allow ourselves to read these other forms um, as you know um, novels plays as well as fragments and to see their philosophical significance as well so my final question for you and we've touched on this in a lot of ways throughout the conversation which has really illuminated so many things that you know, I didn't know and are so worthwhile of more time and detailed study but just to hit the nail on the head if that's the right expression uh, what do you think is lost when we don't study these figures? Yeah, so I've mentioned already that you would lose the larger dialogue that was going on at that time. And I think that's huge. And if you're doing history of philosophy, you just need to know that. But there's another thing that I haven't talked about very much and I think is really important, especially for people studying um, philosophy in the undergraduate level. And that is that for a lot of the women in the 19th century, they were not academic philosophers. They could not be academic philosophers, um, but they were nonetheless philosophers and they did philosophy outside of the academy. And a lot of times this meant 
that they were writing in ways that were more accessible to the larger public, but they were also writing um, in ways that were inspired by questions that were coming from the world, right? So their, their concerns, you could say, are much more motivated by real world questions than the kinds of concerns that we see in someone like Kant. Um, so even some Gunderuda, although she is deeply influenced by Fichte and Schelling, one of the questions for her about self-determination is the problems of self-determination for, for a woman. Of what is it, like the reality of a woman in the 19th century and how difficult it is to achieve anything like what Fichte calls Bestimmung. Uh, and, but then, you know, you see that again and again, that these women were writing about topics that will have real world significance, whether it's poverty, whether it's women's rights, whether it's um, questions about sexuality or feeling or embodiment or um, self-other relationship. They were not just sort of questions that were relevant for a small academic audience. And I think that shows that there's a huge potential for people who study philosophy not to simply go into the academy but to bring those philosophical tools to bear on the really urgent questions that are um, with us today. Yeah absolutely I mean the importance of philosophy outside the academy I think is also a question that's you know incredibly relevant for students today as you, as you yeah. mentioned right who are who are not coming to, to university often without you know jobs and and hobbies and life's outside of what we teach them. Uh, so that sounds so yeah. important yeah. and so fantastic. Yeah. And they, I mean, the thing is they also brought philosophy to the streets. They mm -hmm. were using, you know, relying on theory, but also uh, working with that theory and, and embodying it in marching for women's mm -hmm. rights or marching for workers' rights and so on. So they weren't just, you know, and, and I think, you know, on the one hand, we don't want to fetishize the yeah. fact that they were excluded from the academy that's not fair <laughs> but they were excluded and they managed nonetheless to contribute to philosophy in a in a serious way and have real um real world significance as well thank you so much dahlia um this has been so so interesting uh and you know while it is really unfortunate that these figures and the contributions of women like Stahl and Luxembourg and Britano and all the other ones you've named uh, have been you know, hitherto neglected. Uh, it is you know, really, really exciting to encounter these figures and ideas for the first time. Uh, so thank you for sharing these with me and with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Harry. And before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to say or add? I just hope that um, with these um, two volumes, there's going to be a lot of interest in these women, and I'm really excited to see how people respond. Thank you for listening to New Voices. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizzaria Armanici. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. 
We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.